This is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks on KQV with expert advice from CPA, attorney, and retirement and estate planning expert Jim Lang, best-selling author of Retire Secure and the Roth Revolution, Pay Taxes Once, Then Never Again. Now on air and worldwide, paytaxeslater.com. Now get ready to talk smart money. Welcome to the Lang Money Hour. I'm Dan Weinberg, along with CPA and attorney Jim Lang. And tonight we welcome back to the program P.J. DiNuzzo. P.J. is a nationally recognized expert in investment management. He was approved as one of the first 100-dimensional fund advisors and rated a five-star advisor by Paladin Registry Investor Watchdog. His Pittsburgh-area firm, DiNuzzo Index Advisors Incorporated, consistently ranks among the country's top 500 investment companies. Tonight, P.J. and Jim will be talking about maximizing your retirement assets by using a strategy that is both consistent and flexible. And where better to start then low-cost index investing. Plus, you'll learn about the Denuso Bucket Stack Analysis and how it can help you manage your risk in a way that provides comfort and flexibility for investors. You can call us with your questions, 412-333-9385. That's the number in the studio. Again, 333-9385. Now, let's say good evening to Jim Lang and P.J. Denuso. Welcome, P.J. Good evening. Well, before we get into the meat of tonight's program, I do feel honor-bound to give full disclosure about a relationship that I have with PJ in that usually when I have a radio guest, whether it's Ed Slott or Jack Bogle or Jane Bryan Quinn or Jonathan Clemens or whoever it might be, um, I, I usually plug their book if I think they're, that it's a good book. But frankly, I don't make one nickel on the sale of the book. I don't have any financial interest in whether you buy the book, whether you uh, do business with any of these people. Um, it is, and, and by the way, I never pay them. I've never paid a nickel for anybody to appear as a guest on a show. But there has been no financial interest either way. That isn't the case with P.J. Denuso. Um, P.J. and I have an arrangement, um, and it's a financial arrangement that has worked exceedingly well for um, our company, his company, and more importantly, for our mutual clients. So my company, um, which is Lang Financial uh, Group, we, we do some of the strategic work, like how much money people can afford to spend, should you take a one-life or two-life pension, what are the best strategies for your Social Security, when and how much should you do for a Roth IRA conversion, um, should you... Um, be putting away money for your grandchildren's education, what's the estate planning look like, uh, what's the best way, given your situation, that you should um, take care of the charities of your choice. We, we do that type of planning, and that's what we love to do. PJ, um, though he certainly has knowledge of all those areas, um, his firm, and I believe his strength, is actually managing money. And he uses what I believe is the best set of index funds on the planet, which is Dimensional Fund Advisor Funds. And let's say that you had never heard of me and you went to PJ and you said, PJ, I'd like you to um, manage my money. And he would, you know, we'll, we'll talk about much more what he does. But ultimately, he would, he would charge you a fee, and it's a very fair fee. Um, but if you instead of going to PJ first, you were to come to our office, you would, you would get charged the identical fee to the, to the nickel, 
but you would also get the benefit of our office. So we would run the numbers, we would do calculations, and it's a big deal the first year, and then in subsequent years we do annual reviews, and then he does a big deal the first year. Um, but instead of paying us a fee and him a fee, you pay one fee to both of us. On the other hand, if you like what you hear, you end up possibly doing business with the combination of us, um, then I am obviously no longer objective in this type in this radio show, and I do feel honor bound to mention that. Um, I will say it has been the best association or joint venture of my professional career. I believe we have roughly a hundred and seventy million dollars under management, and much more. And, and we're growing it at a huge rate. I think we're at forty million dollars even just this year. But much more importantly for the investor is we have a 99% retainage rate, meaning that um, we take a lot of time before we accept somebody. But if we do, um, we have maintained 99% of those. So anyway, with that long introduction, I did feel honor-bound to disclose the nature that I am not independent with PJ. Um, so PJ, what the, the, the big thing that everybody's talking about right now is diversification and why not just keep it simple put money in the S&P 500 uh, you know a, a good index fund that is proven and reliable that has done well over time um, why do we really even need to diversify uh, yeah Jim that and it's always interesting if we take a look at the average individuals holding period for individual uh, securities. The average individual holds their average mutual fund position for approximately three years. We don't even want to look at Shanghai's in China. I think it's five or six or seven trading days. So very impatient market over there in China. But uh, so the average individual is having a challenge with really uh, making a commitment, having a strategy and making a commitment to it. And you'll go through periods of time where uh, what our core beliefs or any firm's core beliefs as far as diversification value stocks outperforming, uh, small cap stocks outperforming, et cetera, uh, would be slightly out of favor for a period of time. And that's really a key of how master investors, so to speak, such as Warren Buffett have done so bad, so, so well over the decades upon decades and decades is, you know, they have a philosophy, they have a strategy that they draw from that philosophy, they implement it and they have the discipline to stay with it. So we're, we're certainly in the camp and we, we have never wavered regarding full and proper diversification. I mean, the S&P has been strong. It's been like you could maybe look at this in retrospect in a few years as a flight to quality, so to speak, the last few years of this bull market. But, you know, we're firm believers in diversification. If we take a look at the largest portfolios on earth, endowments, foundations, institutional portfolios, and more importantly, what I, what I consider to be the brightest people on earth, I mean, full and proper diversification, you'll see something along the lines of whatever they have in the stock market around two-thirds in the U.S., two-thirds in international. Uh, of what you do have in the U.S., two-thirds would be in large stocks. And certainly the S&P 500, which we would call U.S. large core, and U.S. large core is basically half growth and half value in the S&P, around half and half. That is a, a large component of that, but you're still missing a lot in diversification with small, uh, missing out on small real estate international. So when you go back and take a look at periods such as 2000, 2001, and 2002, uh, individuals would be shocked, even though it wasn't that long ago, to take a look at how the S&P performed versus the diversified portfolio. 
or being all in the S&P when we came out of 2001 and 02, how much stronger the outperformance was in international. So one thing, unfortunately, for individual investors, and that's why they tend to underperform as much as they do, very limited uh, frame of reference. Uh, they don't maintain their positions long enough. They're not diversified as well enough. Yes, yeah, so um, that would be my as succinct as I can case for full and proper diversification. Well, let's let's say let's look at it from maybe two different angles. If if I'm an investor, I'm probably interested in two things. Um, more importantly than anything, one, I'm interested in the highest return I can get with the greatest amount of safety. So you had mentioned, let's say, two areas: um, small cap and international, which are typically not in the S&P 500. If you had a portfolio that not only included large U.S. companies, but also included, let's say, small U.S. companies and international companies, historically, would you have a, um, a better return than if you just own the S&P? And then we'll get to the safety issue. Yes. yes. Yeah. You, historically, by adding these other premiums, small, international, et cetera, historically, again, the data has shown that that has provided a uh, a greater total return than just the S and P. In fact, it's 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 the difference between say small cap stocks versus large caps is actually quite substantial, isn't it? Not only in the last say uh, you know eighty years or ninety years, but even just in the last ten years. Yeah, small yeah small stocks historically we've got an eighty seven year database now going back and small stocks have historically outperformed large stocks uh, again talking the small stock index versus the S and P for example by a couple of percent per year and if you and if you take the miracle of compounding of two percent more per year that's that's quite a dramatic outperformance over time. All right, well I see we have a question. Why don't we answer the question and then I want to go back to the issue. So, so I think that what you have already said is that, uh, let's say, small has significantly outperformed large, international has significantly outperformed um, U.S., and we'll get to the safety issue, but I know that there's a listener on the, on the line, so why don't we take the question? Sure. Okay. Yeah, they're actually not on the line, but uh, they did ask a question off air. This is Ken, okay. and Ken wants to know what to do now with the current threat of rising interest rates and the stock market at its peak. He says it seems like there is an extremely good chance that both stocks and bonds will lose value in the next couple of years. What would you guys say to that? Um, yeah, Jim, want me to go ahead and take that? Yeah. Okay, please. yeah. Yeah, the um, one thing that's unique, I've been in the business for a decent period of time. I'm, going, I'm getting ready to go on my 27th year, and pretty much every meeting, maybe not every, but at least every week, if not at least multiple times every month for 26 years, the individual sitting across the table from me has told me, I don't know what to do. I'm trying to make a decision. Things are unlike they've ever been before. These are challenges we've never seen before. I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, the market's run out of steam. It's going to, I read some article. I heard something. I heard a report on TV. And I'm not making light of it, but it just is. That's just human nature. I mean, there's always, as they say, the stock market always climbs a wall of worry. And one, one thing I try to help mention to people to get over that is, I always look at that I'm not investing in the stock market. I'm, I'm investing in the economy, in the global economy. And the companies are a subset of that. They're, they make up that global economy. But if you've got economies growing at, let's say, approximately 3%, you've got inflation on top of that, there's dividends that are being paid by productive companies, 
there is a real that that's where the premium comes from of stocks over and above bonds. Now you've got to be able to hold on to those through rising periods. You uh, go back and take a look at. I was just talking to a um, prospective client earlier this morning. And go back and take a look at a period such as uh, January the first of two thousand through December thirty first of two thousand nine. Some market historians would argue that it was the worst decade in history, even worse than the Great Depression. The S and P five hundred average average losing over one percent per year over that entire ten year period of time, and it's surprising how well fifty fifty all index portfolios performed during that period of time. Sixty forty all index portfolios. If you take a look at, if you knew going into January the first of two thousand, and you had a crystal ball and you knew we were going to have two of the, two of the four fifty percent plus meltdowns in our lifetimes in two thousand and one oh two and oh eight and oh nine, and you said I'm just going to invest in CDs and I'm not going to lose a penny, every month my portfolio is going to be making money, it's astounding how poor your performance would have been with a CD versus. Let's say, for example, a 50-50 balanced portfolio. So even if you had a crystal ball going into the worst 10-year period in time, if you said, I'm going to sit this out and only earn interest, only have a CD, you were you dramatically underperformed even a balanced portfolio. Well, I, I, I think that that makes sense because ultimately when you are investing in, um, well, of course, you don't do it in, in individual stocks. You do it, let's say, in a whole bucket of, of stocks, but you're you're actually investing in companies, and historically, when you own equities um, and you're investing and you actually buy companies, you are um, historically going to get a much bigger return than if you lend money to companies. And as you said, um, historically, many so many times, people have let's say said, well, I'm going to stay out of the market, but if you'd stayed, if you had even stayed out of the market, even just since the problems that we had in 2008, you would have missed some of the best years that we ever had. Yeah, you'll never make it up, yeah. And I, I remember very clearly people saying, oh, no, you know, um, and even when the market came back in 2009, now's the time to get out. It's red hot. It's about to go down and... Um, I think really it's a much sounder strategy to have a well-diversified portfolio and you're not radically changing your percentages of stocks and bonds every year because of, you know, let's say your political beliefs or, you know, because of what's going on in China or Europe or Greece or anything else. Is that is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. And the thing is, Jim, you know, I think back, we always think back to the, to the giants of uh, the giants of modern finance and even going back before that to Benjamin Graham who was basically the Warren Buffett of his day. That's who uh, taught Warren Buffett years ago back at Columbia University. And you think back to you know one of his famous statements. I mean, over a short period of time, Benjamin Graham said that the stock market is a voting machine, and over a long period of time, it's a weighing machine. So the voting is the emotions, and the emotions can carry today for six months or a year or two or three years. But the weighing machine, I mean, if you take a look at I'm not going to give away exactly how, ba- how, how long ago it was. When I was in high school, there's well over 100 million more people in the United States alone just from when I graduated high school. That's extra Cheerios, cars, gas going into cars, houses being built, et cetera. So you've got a natural upward bias in the, in the global economy continuing to grow because of people. You've got inflation on top of that. You've got successful companies paying dividends. And if it's not 9% as it's been historically, you know, they, there could be some cause that over the next decade that it may, you may have a return of 6 or 7%. 
in large stocks instead of the historic nine. But the point is, you you can't procrastinate. You can't be you can't be paralyzed. You have to appreciate that all you can do is all you can do. So if the market does six the next ten years and you get your six, you've got to be as happy as you can be with it. That's that's as good as you could have done. Well, well let's let's go back to the issue of diversification because all right. So we we know statistically in the long run, small company stocks. When I say small, I don't mean mom and pop grocery store, but let's say a billion dollar instead of a hundred billion dollar or two hundred billion dollar, but. Small stocks have significantly outperformed large stocks. International stocks have significantly outperformed U.S. stocks. An emerging market has significantly outperformed U.S. stock, although we don't have quite the time period to compare. Um, on the other hand, each one of those areas by itself is more volatile or, or risky. Is it? Do you end up with a safer portfolio by having several different types of investments, even if the individual investments themselves might be more volatile. Yes, Jim, that's what happens, and it's really because of how these investments interact with each other. And and just for me to qualify as a chief investment officer, uh, I would say U.S. small stocks materially outperform, have materially outperformed U.S. large by 11%, let's say, versus 9 But international, it's not so much that they outperform the U.S., I mean, they're pretty much matched up with their counterpart. If we go back and take a look at international large caps the last, let's say, 40 years, that return is very similar to international blue chips to the uh, S&P 500. It's just that low correlation in that whenever U.S. large is not doing well, uh, a material percentage of the time international large is doing well. So with that low correlation, that's really what provides – that's where the magic happens – in building a portfolio, putting these unique pieces into the recipe or formula, if you will. But the emerging markets, again, since they're growing the fastest, they have uh, basically as a group outperformed. And as you said, we've got a little bit over a quarter century, a little bit over 25 years of data, but we expect that to continue to persist in the fastest-growing economies on Earth. All right, well, you're, you're talking about international, and you know most of our listeners are, <laughs> yeah. if they don't read the news, they're at least listening to the news because this is a news station. And they hear about Greece, and they hear about China, and they go, oh, my goodness, what a mess. I better get out of the international. I better get out of China. Or they think that this, that China might bring affect the whole U.S. economy down. How, how would you react to this type of news, and do you think it is useful for people to make the financial decisions based on news and things that they hear? Yeah, I, I would not base it, uh, yeah, certainly on news, you know, on the, on the noise that's out there. But, you know, just to quantify, uh, in a portfolio such as ours, and there's other qualified advisors out there that are building uh, world-class portfolios, uh, if, we're, if we have 60% in stocks and 40% in bonds, let's say that in our entire portfolio, on average, we have approximately 1% of the entire portfolio. It's only one penny on a dollar invested in China. It's a very, very, very small. Though the country is large, people read about the GDP, there's just not that many stocks on their stock exchange that meet the uh, rigorous criteria that we would want to invest in them. So really it's just a bunch of noise. It's in the newspapers, et cetera. I mean, at the end of the day, the supermajority of our portfolio is U.S. and international large dividend-paying blue-chip stocks. So, PJ, we've been talking about diversification, and frankly, I, I've – have you articulate uh, the benefits of diversification, which 
perhaps you and I just kind of take take it for granted because that is the wisdom of the ages, if you will. But I know that you do something a little bit special um, that you call the Denuso Money Bucket Stack Analysis. Could you tell our listeners what that is and how that works? Uh, yeah, Jim, what we do, uh, and yeah, my focus tonight will be on how we uh, work together jointly in providing great solutions uh, for our, our joint clients. Uh, after you've had, on average, a couple of consultations with a prospective client, we then have an initial discovery consultation, getting to know the individual. It could be a household, a couple, partners, individuals, to get to know them as well as possible. And one thing that we've noticed over the years is basically not a, a lack of customization to individual investors. They tend to be with a, a small, very small company that doesn't really have the resources potentially to do them justice, or they may be with a company that has enormous resources but just doesn't pay that much specific customized attention to the individual uh, client. So we're in a re real nice sweet spot in the market being a medium-sized firm with the resources that we have and being able to customize these portfolios into the buckets that we discussed. And what we've come up over the last 26 years, a long time ago, and continue to refine is and provide, you know, what we say at the end of the day that basically half of our business is the numbers and the other half is the emotions. And this really helps on the emotional side as well. But what folks who do like us, and I always qualify that, folks who do like us, what they like is that we have and we've paid attention to them. We, we have got to know them uniquely and individually. We've developed a customized plan for them. We have a customized plan for every doll that they have regarding an investment strategy, a tax planning strategy, a withdrawal strategy, a cash flow strategy. And in building this strategy, we think of oftentimes uh, taking an individual's portfolios and stack, taking that money and stacking it up mentally from the floor to the ceiling and then taking a look at the base or foot or foundation of that stack that's the most important. That would be what we call our cash reserve bucket. Uh, the cash reserve bucket is what we target we like to have when an individual, of course, we, what we specialize in is retirement planning, retirement income planning, as you mentioned earlier, index investment management. So on the retirement income planning side, as we're helping individuals prepare for retirement, we set, start to set some objectives and some goals and some targets that we want them to have at least 12 months in that cash reserve bucket. Now, that's important from a financial perspective, but it's, easy, it's easily, just as easily important from a behavioral ex, uh, perspective that we know that we're going to go through the typical market cycle and the stock market goes through generally a little bit in advance. It's, it's uh, often predicting the future by three to six or nine months. But we're going to go through spring, summer, winter, and fall in the portfolio. And we're down in winter and people are thinking bad thoughts and they haven't been outside. They've been locked up in a cabin for months. They haven't seen the sun. They start to sometimes think bad things. Uh, I'm never going to see the sun again. Uh, and, and they don't have an anchor and bad things can happen on their decisions. So this cash reserve bucket is helpful so that they've got the peace of mind that, hey, I've got 12 months of my monthly living expenses in the local bank, FDIC insurance, no stock exposure whatsoever. Now, the cash reserve bucket also helps us on the upper end. So we're always looking at what's the ceiling, what's the floor. So the ceiling on this that's helpful is we never like to have over three years in that cash reserve bucket. So we have individuals, probably at least one a month that we run into, that have over three months in their cash reserve bucket, and we're able to identify that to them, explain it with them, and they're able to understand that, hey, I, this money is years and years away from me even possibly needing it. 
and maybe it's still in some type of fixed income or bond type investment, but earning one or two or three percent more than what they're currently earning, the way that they have it invested is adds real value to the relationship. So after we have the cash reserve bucket, the next one we come up with is what we refer to as the needs bucket. And I wish I could come up with an easier way, so to speak, of arriving at this. But, you know, as you've seen, Jim, we go through methodically, copiously, painstakingly. We go through building a personal balance sheet for an individual, the same as if they were U.S. Steel or PPG Corp. What are all your assets? What are all your liabilities? Then we go through what, have, what is all of your income and what is all of your expenses? And then we bifurcate those expenses into fixed expenses and variable. But we go down through line by line, and we've got our software customized over the years that we want to capture every expense, but especially we want to capture and follow through with all the food, clothing, shelter, health care, and transportation. So this gets into portfolio construction, certainly, and doing it the best way we'd argue with indexes. But also on the behavioral side, anytime we go back and take a look at bad market periods, we look at 2000, starting in October of 07, through the whole year of 08, and March and April of 09, 2001, 02, 2000, 01 and 02, 1973, 74, any of these bad periods, when, when the forensic economists, so to speak, go back and, and uh, dig through the financial rubble of these periods, what they'll notice is, you know, the, obviously they'll notice the order imbalances that 10 people want to sell and only one person wants to buy or 20 want to sell and only one want to buy. And then they'll go through and they'll go back in and take a look at just who actually were these individuals. You know, Jim Smith from Peoria, Illinois, uh, Jane Doe from Sacramento, California, and take a look at these individuals and what was it that caused them to sell. And what caused them to sell in these instances was basically their portfolio was too aggressive for them, too aggressive for their risk tolerance, too aggressive for their time horizon. And what the, uh, so to speak, the forensic economists have come up with, the behavioral scientists have come up with is if your food, clothing, shelter, healthcare, and transportation on average across the country if that portfolio goes down by much more than 10% over the course of a year, that causes an alarm to go off for the average individual. So, so I think, and by the way, a couple, couple things that I should add. Um, you do do a more copious, detailed job than any financial advisor I've known. I've been exposed to thousands literally all across the country. When you say you construct a balance sheet, I see that, and it's a huge amount of work. And I, and I always love your saying, everybody's a snowflake, because we do that on the number-crunching side. You know, we actually crunch everybody's individual numbers, and there is no, you know, you're, you're like a eight, you're, you fit in this slot, yeah. you fit in that slot. It really is individual, and I know that you base your whole portfolio on that, which I just think is is tremendous. It's tremendous value to your client. And like you said, part of it is, yes, it is a better way to invest. And the other part is now people are going to feel safer because if the market does go down and their cash and their immediate needs are taken care of, then they're going to be less likely to panic um, and bail when the market is low. Yes, exactly. It's a behavioral side. Yes, exactly. Right. And and then I guess we can keep talking a little bit because there's some interaction in our office because, for example, we might want to have different tax-type investments invested differently. So if, for example, we do the Roth IRA conversion analysis and we determine 
uh, or somebody actually comes in with Roth IRAs, because I've been talking about Roth IRAs even before they were allowed in 97, and then they were passed in 98. But that, that the Roth money would certainly be, which presumably you're going to spend much later, maybe you're never going to spend, maybe that's your legacy money, you're going to invest that money differently yes. and much differently than you would, say, a cash needs or a closed closed-shoulder-type um, need. Is that right? Yeah, Jim, that would actually be in our top bucket. That would be what we refer to as our dreams and wishes bucket. That would be at the very top of the stack. And the ideal investment for that bucket, because if uh, we skip the once, I'll go back to that. But that top bucket, if we look at that and say that there's a 99% chance that that household is not going to touch that money while they're alive, and then they're looking for their beneficiaries, for their heirs, et cetera, to receive that money, what better, I mean, in our mind, the perfect investment, tax-free growth, tax-free withdrawals in the Roth IRA. It's, it's just a perfect fit. All right. And then, then you have a couple in between. Is that right? Yeah. The, we, yeah, we have the – so the footer and foundation, again, is that cash reserves bucket, the money in the bank for the sleep at night. Then we've got our needs bucket, and we identify that. And as you said, Jim, that's why, as you said, I've used that snowflake uh, you know, metaphor, what have you, for, for a long time. Because it is, every, you can't say, oh, this is, a, this is a green or this is a yellow, this is a number seven type account. I mean, it's literally different every single time, different numbers, different solutions, different customization. So we've got the cash reserve bucket, then we have the needs bucket for food, clothing, shelter, healthcare, and transportation. Then on top of that, we get into the discretionary, which would be our wants buckets. Our wants bucket is for all of our non-essential spending. It's for uh, dining out, vacation, entertainment, travel. And there are a number of categories in there. Sometimes clients will say, and that's where the customization comes in. I'll say, PJ, I understand you got the food, clothing, shelter, et cetera, and the needs. But I really feel very special, you know, myself and my spouse or myself and my partner have talked for years, and we really want to spend at least X number of dollars in retirement on vacation. So we'll lock that in, and we'll move that down to the needs bucket so that they know they got food, clothing, shelter, et cetera, plus that their vacation and or whatever, whatever expenses maybe. Uh, uh, putting aside so much money per year for uh, in 529 plans for their grandchildren, whatever that may be. But then once we get to the once bucket, so now we've identified at reasonable rates of withdrawal how much funding we have to have. And we literally know, we, we literally don't know when we go into that initial discovery consultation, is an individual going to have extra money, so to speak, in the dreams and wishes bucket? If so, how much? Uh, then that's where we're talking, you know, myself and our wealth advisor talking to you and on, on your law firm, on the estate planning side, and on your uh, CPA firm, uh, on the tax planning side, for the Roth IRA conversions, ideas are going back and forth. We're kicking around how to best help our clients pay the lease and taxes, structure them as well as possible, protect their assets going forward. So there really is, that's what leads us into maybe the last segment after the next break. I think we had talked about the four corners, but really, you know, with this money bucket stack analysis, what we have at the end of the day is, a very specific customized asset allocation, which means stocks and bonds. So what we end up with is, on average, three different strategies for the average household. We're, we're running one strategy for them for their needs, another strategy with a little bit more in, in stocks for their wants, and then another strategy with more growth or full growth or aggressive growth in that dreams and wishes bucket. By, so by having three customized strategy, that allows us to produce an optimal, optimized outcome. Well, I know it's a lot of work for your office, and then if you add in what we're doing, 
because we're often op- optimizing Social Security um, with appliance to spend, and that might change the timing yes. of when people are going to um, get money from Social Security. And, and potentially, what we often do is hold up on Social Security using the appliance to spend technique and then do a series of Roth IRA conversions, which I know um, has an impact on on your cash flow planning, because it's not just investment planning, but it's cash flow planning, too. Yes. And I will just quickly mention that um, I am not independent with PJ. Um, PJ and I have a combined service where our office does uh, runs the numbers, does some big-picture planning, estate planning, retirement planning, Roth IRA planning, Social Security planning. His office actually manages money using what we both believe are the best set of low-cost index funds on the planet, all for a cost of between 50 basis points, meaning one-half of 1% on the low end and 1% on the high end. And um, it has been a win-win-win, meaning it has been good for us, it has been good for PJ, and most importantly, it has been great for clients who pay one fee. And that's one of the reasons we enjoy a 99% uh, retainage rate, and I usually have a, have a guest where I, you know, if I like the book, I say, you know, uh, it's a good book. I recommend that you buy it. Well, here I'm going to plug my own book, uh, Retire Secure. It is my flagship book. Uh, it sells for twenty four dollars and ninety five cents for KQV listeners. It is free, and the other thing that it has at the end of the book, it has a long explanation of how PJ and I work together. So if somebody is interested in having an effect, both the tax strategies, the Social Security, the Roth, um, with money using this stack analysis that we're talking about um, for between 50 basis points and, and 1%, there's a very good explanation on that. And the book, which comes hard copied, by the way, this we don't send you an email. Uh, we use good old-fashioned direct mail we send you the book, and it is free by going to jameslange.com. All right, so, PJ, the, the thing that we really probably, uh, I guess I just kind of mentioned it a little bit, but, but you like to, you have, <laughs> I, I always love your terminology. You know, you sometimes um, have an interesting way of putting things, like for a less sophisticated investor, you might say, well, they don't know a stock from a rock or something like that. But the other thing that you say is you talk about the four corners. Um, can you tell me about what you mean by the four corners in personal f- finance? Um, yeah, Jim, and that's really, uh, and I'm not patronizing uh, yourself or your firms or anything, but really that's the, the, that's the best part to me about the joint, uh, so to speak, uh, strategic partnership, I'll put it that way, that we have in that the, every individual uh, who's listening to the, to the show tonight or who does this for themselves or is, or is working with anyone for that matter basically has a personal financial house the way that I look at it, whether they know it or not. And the personal financial house is going to dictate their success for the rest of their life because that's where all the money is going to come from, the cash flow, their, their, anything to do with finances. And if you took a look, if you pulled the roof off, if you lifted the roof off your personal financial house, you notice that there's four large rooms in your personal financial house. Uh, and let's say there's a bright line even down the middle of the house. So if you looked at one corner, let's say the first corner in the upper left would be 
the estate planning corner, uh, you could say estate planning slash legal, customized beneficiary designations, et cetera. And, you know, Jim, uh, Attorney Jim Lang is a longtime estate planning attorney. He has a phenomenal group of very competent, very qualified estate planning attorneys in his office who specialize in that corner. Uh, so for us being able to have a joint strategic partnership where we work as close as we do and the, the, the value that's added by your firm analyze the initial analysis, getting people uh, in, in the proper structure, taking care of things in the ongoing basis, everything with estate planning, a huge, huge benefit in that room. Then the, next, the next room I would say is next to the estate planning room would be the tax planning room. Uh, Jim, of course, has even been a CPA longer than he's been an attorney, and he has a handful of extraordinarily competent CPAs in the office that myself and our wealth advisors are talking to. I'd say literally one of our wealth advisors is speaking with one of Jim's estate planning attorneys or CPAs on a daily basis, uh, working together, as Jim had said, for the ultimate goal of helping our clients. And it's in this tax planning corner that um, actually I, I first met Jim, first referred my first customer, my first client over to him rather uh, over 20 years ago. And one thing that's always amazed me, and again, I'm not patronizing Jim, just speaking to the audience, is that of, I'd say, 90 to 95% or even more of the Roth IRA conversions, and uh, it could be Roth IRA conversions, it could be capital gain harvesting, any way to get money away from the tax man as much as possible, let's say before seven and a half, when you have to start your required minimum distributions. It's been Jim who's taken a look at that. That it's been Jim who's taken a look at that individual's finances, and has recommended for them to uh, to harvest a certain amount of Roth conversions per year, and has shown them in black and white how much they're going to save in tax savings over their lifetime, and also equally or greater importance over their children and beneficiaries' timeline. And it's always amazed me whenever Jim's done this analysis that, again, over nine times out of ten. The, the clients that Jim's making this recommendation for have a CPA. They have a tax advisor, and this is something that was just missed on their end, that Jim's been able to bring a phenomenal amount of value to the table. So on that half of the room, uh, either Jim or one of his estate planning attorneys or one of his CPAs does an annual review, depending on Jim's uh, on how Jim allocates it. But you, you have a professional from one of Jim's companies doing an annual review, looking in those two rooms and your overall picture, and then on the bright line uh, through the room on the other two rooms on our side of the house, so to speak, would be the retirement income planning room. Uh, you know, we have 16 team members, six wealth advisors. And again, if there's two things that we've specialized in for 26 years, it's retirement income planning and index management. So as Jim said, between all the detail that we have with building the personal financial statements from the ground up, we've got all the G whiz bang software that any other firm would have. But it's the age old saying, I mean, garbage in and garbage out. And we see other firms come up with numbers that are completely off target. And again, because they don't have the high quality initial data that we have from the couple of meetings that Jim has spent with clients initially, the couple of meetings we've spent. So we're spending four, sometimes five high quality initial consultations to get all this initial footer and foundation information correct. So the retirement planning is an ongoing process with our typical client. We like to meet twice a year for a semi-annual progress meeting. On the investment side, where I serve as chief investment officer, as Jim had mentioned a number of times, uh, we've been an efficient market theory firm for basically since our inception. It was pretty rough at the beginning in the late 80s and early 90s because we had Vanguard, but there wasn't anywhere near the selection of indexes available at that time. But when we couple all of these four corners of the room together, 
the estate planning, the tax planning, the retirement planning, and investment management uh, individually stand alone. They are tremendous solutions and add significant value, but it's really in that harmony. And when they work in concert, we're, we've got – it takes at least three companies to do this, which is amazing as well as Jim – has two companies, again, the estate planning firm, the tax, uh, the CPA firm, and on our side, the registered investment advisory practice, but they have three firms who can work together with one goal, in my mind, only one goal, and that is to help every client or every prospective client that we meet to help them as much and materially as possible for them to succeed because, as we know, we've both been in business for a long time. If our clients succeed, we're going to succeed. So we, you know, we both have a fiduciary standard. We place our clients first and foremost at the top, and as long as we take care of that, everything works out well uh, going forward. And we have the one thing we didn't talk about today, and I don't, Dan, tell me if we have time or not. Does PJ have a minute or two to talk about index investing and the difference between index investing and active investing and why we are advocates of index investing and particularly dimensional fund advisors? Do we have time for that? Oh, yeah. He can take six minutes if he wants. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh, 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 good. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, indexing for the audience uh, listeners, again, still the majority of money that's managed on the – that individual investors hold in their portfolios still today, over 50% is still in active mutual funds. So as you said, Jim, you know, what's the bright line or the litmus test from one versus the other? If, if the audience can think the basic uh, – and as they may, he- may have heard, there's a lot more information out there regarding indexes. The S&P 500 for U.S. large stocks, the Russell 2000 for U.S. small stocks. But what we see over time is over the average 10-year period of time, all of, the, uh, all of the active managers, and those would be all the names, which I won't mention on the air, that individuals uh, may uh, be very familiar with that are in their portfolio. There's basically one of two ways. You take the market rate of return or you try to, out, you try to beat the market and try to outperform the market. And what we see over the average set, over the average ten-year period of time, is on average three out of four active managers underperforming the index that they're trying to beat. So that's you know when I saw that data years ago, it didn't take me long to convince myself to say I'm going to just index as much as humanly possible in the portfolio. Uh, so you know if we can win on average three out of four times over a ten-year period of time, and it, and it is because of all these very very intelligent active managers with all the market participants who are analyzing each and every, every individual equity stock security, each and every individual fixed income bond security, and pricing these as uh, well as humanly possible. We call that price discovery on basically a nanosecond by nanosecond basis that the market is very efficient. So if we think of all these millions and millions of highly intelligent investors pricing these securities on a second by second basis, it becomes very, very difficult for someone to sit so to speak, on the outside looking in and, and, and come up with a thesis that I know something that all of these millions of investors don't know, and they've really mispriced this security, and I'm going to take advantage of that. I think, Jim, and I was looking at the data the other day that I think there's only, from 15 years ago, if you took a snapshot of all domestic stock managers in the U.S. 15 years ago, that at the end of last year on 12, 31, and 14, I think there was only – 39 out of 100 that were still in business. So there have been, on, a, on average, 61% of all active uh, equity stock mutual fund managers had closed the fund. And they only, you only close the fund. You don't close it if it's successful. You close it because it's underperforming your benchmark. But just over 15, that's a short period of time when it comes to investing that uh, getting close to two out of three, not only it underperformed, but it actually closed relative to their performance to the index. So 
you know, you'll hear fancier words like efficient market theory. That's just the thought, again, that you have millions and millions of buyers versus millions and millions of sellers looking at a security, pricing out, again, Google, Johnson & Johnson, Facebook, whatever the individual stock is, and arriving at the best price at every moment of the day. And you can, and you can get back to what I referred to earlier in the show, Benjamin Graham. You've got that voting machine, so that's just the emotions of individuals investors and if individual investors do one thing for sure they either overshoot or undershoot they 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 have a hard time staying in the middle that pendulum gets stuck in the wall on one side and then when they pull it out it doesn't stay in the middle of the room for long it goes and gets stuck on the wall on the other side so individuals have a real hard time on the behavioral side so you know what i would what i would uh, recommend to the audience to the listeners is if they're not that familiar with it you know the the world wide web uh, go and uh, google it Go online, read up. You can go to Investopedia, look up some definitions. But taking a look at efficient market theory, taking a look at indexing, and then as Jim had uh, referred to earlier, the diversification, not putting all your eggs in one basket, having indexes as far as U.S. indexes versus international. And, of course, the typical investor would want to have bonds in a bond index as well in their portfolio. Yeah, um, Charles Ellis calls the, you know, looking for the best mutual fund or the best stock, he calls that the loser's game because the vast majority of players do lose. And I think your approach where let's spend that time instead of playing the loser's game of really planning out people's finances, the cash flow, the the tax loss harvesting. Social Security, like you said. Social Security, the Roth, et cetera. I think it's just a much better yeah, spend yeah, Exactly. Spend it on the planning side. And we tell clients all the time, I mean, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And I refer, I tell clients pretty much every meeting. I talked to somebody about investing. I said, the wheel's already been invested. In our mind, it's the nicest, smoothest, roundest wheel on earth. We don't want to waste our time trying to reinvent that wheel. Let's, let's apply that. Let's use it. And as you said, let's use our valuable time and all of our expertise and knowledge to help clients on all of the various planning uh, topics that you had just mentioned. All right, any closing thoughts? Any more closing thoughts? Are we... Well, again, I, I, I want to thank you, PJ, and I'll, and I'll just mention that the book is out. Um, it's free, and it has, a, it has a, a good description of how PJ and I work together, and that's at jameslang.com. Thanks for listening to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Check out the show archives and listen on demand anytime at paytaxeslater.com.